Well, let's pray. We are moved, O oh Lord, for we, rem- we know from your word that the whole purpose of the eternal Son coming was to die for wretches like us. Where would we be without Jesus? We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done, that you paid this horrible price for us. We thank you, O Holy Spirit, for bringing us to Jesus, changing our heart. We magnify you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray through the intercessory work of Jesus. Amen. We have arrived at John chapter 20 last week. We looked at John chapter 19 and all the things that surrounded the death of the Lord Jesus. All those events regarding his crucifixion that were prophesied to occur. And we know something about prophecy. If God has prophesied, it will come to pass. There's no if and maybes or anything. So all these prophecies had to come to pass. We saw the glory of that in Jesus' crucifixion. And we learned that Jesus' death on the cross was essential to our salvation. Why? Because we need to have a perfect substitute. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do anything to remedy our own sinful condition. So that's why we needed a perfect substitute. Hence, we ought to constantly thank Jesus for what he has done on our behalf and that we are to proclaim his excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, we got to tell somebody. We need to tell someone this wonderful story. The, good, the old, old story will always be relevant. And finally, we see that Scripture says that he, Jesus purchased us with his blood in order that he would pay the ransom price. And because he paid that ransom price, the Bible says he purchased us. He purchased us, means that ransom, with his blood. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. We don't belong to ourselves. So the crucifixion of Jesus, absolutely essential for our salvation. Now, as we arrive at John 20 and the resurrection... We're not going to go through all the details of John 20, but we're going to highlight what is the significance for us for the the resurrection and bring out several passages that you may have wondered about. What on earth could it possibly mean here in John chapter 20? Now, we've got to understand that our, our salvation rests upon two great biblical doctrines, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the two great doctrines. Our our salvation hinges upon those. Jesus in his last year, year of ministry kept emphasizing to his disciples these two essential truths. He says, the son of man, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be uh, delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes. I gotta be scourged and mocked. I gotta be delivered up to the Gentiles to be crucified. So Jesus told them. So Jesus is emphasizing these two great doctrines, his death and his resurrection. So there you have it. When Jesus said, 
that he had to go to Jerusalem and he had to be scourged. And, but he said, I will be raised from the dead on the third day. On the third day. So there you have it, those two great doctrines. And what I want us to see from our text, take a look at John 20 and look at verse 9 where it says there, for as yet they did not understand. This is the uh, resurrection morning. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I want to emphasize that fact. He must rise from the dead. It's not an optional thing. So one could ask this question, the death of Jesus atones for our sins, right? Yes. Isn't that enough? He that paid the penalty for our transgression, isn't that enough? He was our propitiation. He was that bloody sacrifice that satisfied the divine justice. Isn't that enough? Wasn't his death sufficient to save his elect for all time? Well, yes. Well, since this is true... Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Why does the scripture say he must rise from the dead? Can he be like all those other religious leaders the world has ever known? The moral teachers, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, all of these? I mean, their bones are still in their graves, why can't Jesus' bones still be in his graves? Why is so much dependent upon Jesus rising from the dead? Well, the thing is, when the scripture says he must rise from the dead, yes, he must. There is no salvation outside the resurrection of Jesus. A person, in fact, you and I have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus in order to be a genuine Christian. It, it, it is an essential doctrine of the faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us quite forthrightly that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a man believes into uh, righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You and I have to believe in the resurrection of the dead. When I was in Texas playing tennis with a guy, he said, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I said, his name is Paul. I said, but Paul, you, you really do have to believe this to be a Christian. So why was Jesus's resurrection essential for salvation? Well, because the scripture says, without it, we are still in our sins. I mean, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 20, here's what Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The reason Jesus' resurrection is so vital for our salvation is that without it, you and I are still under the curse of sin without the resurrection of Jesus. The scripture says that the soul that sins must die. Had Jesus remained under the power of death, even though he, we could say he atoned for sin, had he remained under the power of death, how is he going to deliver us from the power of death if he hasn't delivered himself? And this means when we die, then there's no hope for us. If he didn't rise from the dead, there's no hope for us either. And it means that we are to be pitied of all men. Why should we be pitied? Because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead when he really didn't. And that means that all that we have trusted in is in vain. And so it doesn't matter what all these other faiths have said. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no hope. So we got to remember Jesus' resurrection has a twofold implication. One, it has an implication for Jesus himself in this sense. Remember, one of the things that Jesus was praying in his high priestly prayer was that he says, now, Father, I want you to glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus was praying that as a result of, the, of his obedience in coming and assuming human flesh to die for our sin, that the Father would reward him for that obedience. So Jesus, here's the thing. The whole purpose of his coming, remember, is for us. It's for us. The eternal son didn't have to leave. He didn't have to leave heaven. But if, it's going, if we're going to be saved, if somehow Adam's rebellion is going to be remedied, only God could remedy that. And that meant God had to come in the flesh. And that's why Jesus came. So, he came for us, he died for us, and he was raised for us. So Jesus had to rise from the dead in order to be glorified. He had to rise from the dead to be exalted by the Father. Philippians brings that out quite clearly. He became obedient to death, even the death on the cross, whereas God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name so that Jesus had to be glorified. Well, he had to be exalted in heaven so that he's of value to us. Now that he's been glorified, remember the resurrection of Jesus, it applied to Jesus in terms of receiving a reward for what he had did, but he came for us. He was raised for us. That's what it's all about. 
So his resurrection was absolutely essential because without it, he's not king of kings, is he? He's not Lord of lords, is he? Without the resurrection, there's no ascension. And if there's no ascension, there's no sitting at the right hand of God, the Father. And if he's not sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, guess who's not sent? The Holy Spirit's not sent. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to go away, and it's expedient for you that I go away because I will send to you the Comforter, meaning the Holy Spirit. Well, if he's not, if he's not raised, it means he's not ascended. And if he's not ascended, then there's no Holy Spirit to be sent. And there is no empowerment in the life of the believer if he's not ascended. That's why Peter makes such a big deal in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. With no risen Christ, where's there a value in preaching? There is none, right? There's no gospel preaching. What value is, is gospel preaching if Jesus is not raised from the dead? And so the necessity of Christ's resurrection and his ascension enables us to understand one place. I want you to take a look at John 20, 17. It helps us to understand this interesting situation that you may have read and said, what on earth does this mean? Look at verse 17 of John 20. Now, this is the day of resurrection. Mary and the other women have gone to prepare the body, and Jesus has been raised from the dead. So they're the first to see Jesus raised from the dead. We're told here that Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now you may have read that and say, was there something about Jesus' body? Jesus said, don't, don't, don't touch me. I, I'm not of this world. Is, is that what he's talking about? Well, we know it can't be that because later on in John 20, he tells his disciples, well, look, touch me. Feel my hands. Feel my side. I'm not a ghost. And where's the food? Ghosts don't eat food. So it can't mean something like that. So what can it mean that Jesus would tell her, well, he tells her this in this sense. You know, actually, Matthew brings something up uh, in his text that is very helpful here because Matthew 28, 9 records the women. When it says the women saw him, they were grabbing his feet. And it says they were worshiping him. Now, John doesn't mention that, but Matthew does. And it's very important here, I think, to understand why Jesus says, stop clinging to me. Think about Mary for a moment. What did Jesus do for her? He cast out seven demons for her. That's one thing that he did. We know that she went along with him on his, on his missions. Some believe that she may have helped finance his, his ministry. 
she had great emotional ties to Jesus, as did the other women. But Mary's mentioned here. So understanding what Matthew says about that, we get an idea when Jesus says to her, Mary, and he gives, it's a present imperative. It's a command. Stop clinging to me. What was she doing? They were grabbing hold of his feet and they were worshiping him. They were adoring him. What Jesus is saying to Mary is, Mary, henceforth, things are going to be different. I know you would like to have me around to talk to, to converse with, but it's not going to be the same, Mary. In fact, it's going to be better, Mary. So stop clinging to me as if things are the way they used to be. No, I'm going to the Father. And it's going to be to your advantage and everybody else that I go. So that really is the best way to understand that passage that many have have looked at and wondered what on earth is meant by that. But it tells us something that Jesus, about his resurrection and about his ascension, that life was going to be different with his disciples. And we know in those, that 40-day period of time between the resurrection and ascension, Jesus was not constantly with his disciples. Most of the time, he shows up one day of the week. Doesn't mean he didn't show up the others, but he shows up one day of the week, the first day of the week. And we're going to see what value there is there. So, the uninterrupted fellowship that Mary had longed for was going to change and it's going to be for her benefit. So Mary, stop clinging to me in this world. It's going to be different. So it's going to be a far richer fellowship that Jesus will have with Mary and all the other disciples. So we're told that Jesus appeared on the day of his resurrection. He appeared to them And the scripture says here in John, on the first day of the week. There, verse 19. When therefore it was evening, and on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus shows up and says, peace be unto you. Well, one thing here, and I will allude to this, some have asked, As our confession says about the Sabbath, that the Sabbath has changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. And why is that the case? Because the appearances of Jesus were on the first day of the week. Our confession of faith uh, mentions that in its chapter on religious worship on the Sabbath. In fact, here's, here's what the confession of faith says specifically. It says... from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in the scripture is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. And all the proof texts that are given in our confession on that is one is 1 Corinthians 
16.1, where Paul says, on the first day of the week, gather the collections for the church. And they gathered the collections and they heard the preaching on the first day of the week. We're told in Revelation 1, when John was on the island of Patmos, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's where we get called the first day of the week. It's called the Lord's day. When he had the vision of the book of Revelation. So these appearances of Jesus to his disciples were on the first day of the week. And so it became customary for the, for the church to realize that is an important day for us to observe henceforth. So when Jesus arrives to him, he says, peace be to you. Well, what was going on? Well, one, they were afraid. John says they were afraid um, for their lives. They were fearful of, of the Jews. But then also, uh, Matthew brings out something uh, that I think is very helpful because he says, not only were they afraid of the Jews, but it says that Luke says they were terrified when Jesus appeared on the day of resurrection. Uh, that's Luke's account. They were terrified, and that explains why Jesus says, look, peace be to you. He says, I'm in the flesh. I'm a real person. They said, <coughs> it says they were terrified because they thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. Touch me, and you'll see I'm not a ghost. And he says, and then feed me. What do you have to eat? Emphasizing the fact Jesus really and truly rose from the dead physically. And so we see that John, in his gospel account, especially in verse 21, makes it very clear that Jesus said to his disciples, I've got a mission for you. And my mission to you, and here's what he says. In fact, it says it right here in verse 21. If you look, John 20, 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, Jesus said, I came in this world for a mission. Remember, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom, Father, you have given me. That's who I'm praying for. And Jesus also prayed, if you remember in John 17, he's praying for them not to be taken out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one. So Jesus doesn't want them to be out of the world. Why? Because he's got a mission for them. And what is that mission? To preach the gospel. So Jesus appears to them, affirms to them, he's a real man, but he has a mission for them to go out. In fact, Luke brings it up. John doesn't mention that much, but Luke brings it up where it says, after he appears to them on that first resurrection day, it says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name throughout all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. 
You're witnesses of my suffering and you're witnesses of my resurrection. Brethren, this is the apostolic message. This is the message of the apostles. The death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, that's what Paul says when he's writing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that the gospel should encompass two things, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Brethren, the the message is quite simple, but it is profound. Believe that Christ has died for your sins and believe that Jesus was raised for your justification. That's what Romans says. He was raised for our justification. Now, what's interesting here, if you look at at verse 22, you may wonder about this passage. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You go, hold on. I thought they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost, and that day is yet 40 days into the future. So what does it mean that they were, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit? Well, the difference is this. They did receive the Spirit when he breathed on them because the Scripture says they did. And what is the difference? The difference is it's power. There's the difference. What some have said, what Jesus meant here was receive the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you an earnest. I'm giving you a down payment of what it's going to be like in a few days henceforth. The difference of what Jesus did in giving them the Spirit then as opposed on the day of Pentecost is quite frankly this, power. Power is the difference. That's what came at Pentecost. And so the power for what? The power to preach the gospel. That's for one. To preach the everlasting gospel. I mean, that's what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So This breathing of the Spirit upon the disciples was a earnest payment, we could say, of what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. So on this this pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, to get power, to preach, and what happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people got converted. That's what happened. That's power. That is power. And remember, Peter quotes Psalm 110, stretch forth thy strong scepter. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Well, they were convicted of the day of Pentecost. And the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the apostles that Jesus gave them and in the power of the gospel in reaching down and regenerating their hearts was profound. 
And so we, we see that Jesus, he comes to him on that day of resurrection, telling him that I am going to empower you to do what I have commissioned you to do, to go and tell all the nations of the death and resurrection of me. We're also told, if you look there in, in John 20, 23, it says the disciples, he gave them authority over sins to, look, look at what it says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Well, one thing is for sure is that when he gave them the Holy Spirit, he did give them a certain authority. And the best way to, to understand this is that in this regard, they, they have authority to do what? Well, it is an authority to shut the doors of heaven or to open the doors of heaven for people. Much like what Matthew says. If you retain the sins, if you're not willing to forgive the sins, they're not forgiven. But if you do forgive the sins, they are forgiven. What this goes to show is the authority that he gave to his apostles and that has been passed down to his elders throughout history so that this, we can say this, when church elders make ecclesiastical decisions, they can be binding upon people if they are consonant with the word of God. There's the key. It has to be consistent with the word of God. So if they're going to shut, retain the sins of some, they better be sure that these people deserve to have their sins held against them until they repent. But if a person has repented, they have that authority to forgive them. And so what we see here is that authority that Jesus bestowed upon his disciples starting on that first day of resurrection. Well, let me conclude in John 20 emphasizing that great encounter that Jesus had with Thomas. We could say that the disciple Thomas, I would refer to him as the ultimate evidentialist. <laughs> That's what Thomas was. Now, Thomas was not there. We're told in the scriptures, and John mentions it, the first appearance of Jesus with his disciples, Thomas was not there. It was eight days later on the first day of the week that Jesus comes back and meets with his disciples, and Thomas is there. And Thomas is saying, I ain't going to believe it. I'm not going to believe he's risen from the dead. Of course, the others didn't believe it either until they saw Jesus. He said, I won't believe it until I can put my hands in his hands and in his side. And that great passage there, if you look at John 20, look at verse uh, <clears throat> 26 and following. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut 
and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger. See my hands? Reach here your, your hand. Put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And what was Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. Oh, he believed. But I think it's important for you and me to, to see what, what Jesus said to Thomas. And it's so important. Look what he said. Because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. Oh yeah, Thomas, you saw me and believed. But all those down through the centuries who have never seen Jesus physically but believed, blessed are they. So guess what? As the scripture says elsewhere, it's, it's better to, to walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Why do you and I believe in Jesus? Because the scripture says so. We weren't eyewitnesses of it, but we believe them. We believe the scriptures. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, he, was, he died according to the scriptures. He was risen according to the scriptures. We have the scriptures. That's all we need. That is all that you and I need to walk by faith. You know, in that regard, it reminds us of that the story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man dying and going to hell and Lazarus uh, <clears throat> going in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man's in hell and he wants his tongue to be, a water to be dipped of this terrible place he's found and he says to Abraham, I got, I got brothers who need to be told not to come to this place. Have someone rise from the dead. And you know what Jesus says? He says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to be willing to hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So that you, you know, you could say to somebody, if you're out in evangelism, say, well, I have to really see it. Well, no, you really don't have to see it. It's greater that you believe what has been written in the word of God, which is, by the way, Peter says, is a more better than eyewitness testimony. The scripture is more valuable than an eyewitness testimony, according to 2 Peter 1. What's the conclusion? We must, you and I must believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. And, and here's the glory of the resurrection. Contrary to what we hear some today saying, there is no bodily resurrection. Jesus rose again for our sake. For our sake is why he rose. So that you and I will one day rise again. 
If he didn't rise, neither when we will rise. That's how important it is. And that's what we should learn. Yes, we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus in order to be a genuine Christian. And yes, the gospel is simple, but profound. Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That is the apostolic message. That's the message that preachers are to preach today. Unwavering, faithfully, Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all these glorious truths about what Jesus has done for us. Hallelujah. Because he is raised, we too will rise. And we thank you. We will always be thanking you throughout eternity when we get that glorified body like he has, a glorified body that will never feel any more pain, it will be gone, and there will be no sin in that glorified body. I, I cannot even imagine what it's going to be like, Jesus, but thank you. Thank you. We pray in your precious name, amen.